DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the St. Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He's the author of several books, including Hidden Mountain Secret Garden, A Theological Contemplation of Prayer. In this series of conversations with Dr. Lillis, we reflect on the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. Her retreat, Heaven and Faith, is the source of our current reflection. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Heaven and Faith, the first day, now is taking us into the second prayer. Can you explain to us a little bit more about what happens in the life of a day retreat? Um, Sure. The idea of having a theme that you pray over each day of a retreat, this was something that emerged in Spain. Italy and Spain developed these kind of several weeks of reflection on different mysteries of Christ. St. Ignatius of Loyola course was in after his conversion went to Montserrat experienced that and in his experience of this he'll develop his spiritual exercises in those spiritual exercises again it's a there's a reflection on the mystery of Christ uh, that where you uh, meditate on God's word and after meditating on God's word you have a conversation with the Lord make a resolution about how you're going to live your life in the Carmelite tradition in France, late 19th century and early 20th century where Elizabeth is, the Jesuits are among the primary spiritual directors for, for many of the Carmelites, the Jesuits and the Dominicans. And then the Jesuits help the Carmelites think in these same terms, pick up a theme and meditate on it during your day retreat. And this is what Elizabeth is doing each day. She introduces themes to be meditated on by these prayers. And again, there's two prayers, a prayer in the morning and a prayer in the evening. You would pray the prayer and then you take a couple hours to meditate, to mull it over, to talk to the Lord about it. And the idea would be, as you're talking to the Lord about it, in your heart you'd make a resolution. Well, now, what does this mean for my life? What do I need to do to be able to make this word part of my life, to appropriate this word into the way I live day in and day out. And so this is what Elizabeth is doing for her sister. Elizabeth herself, when she's writing this, she's taking a retreat. And in the morning, she's writing down the reflection that God gives her during her meditation. And in the evening, she's doing it again. And she does that for each of the 10 days of this retreat called Heaven and Faith. And she's doing this because she believes these meditations are going to help her sister a mother of two young daughters, newly married, out in the world trying to be a good Catholic. She believes these are going to help her sister enter deep into the transforming love of Christ. And I think that when we approach Elizabeth's writings, reading them, meditating on them, kind of the way she envisioned them be read and meditated on, opens us up to the same graces she wanted for her sister.
although Margaret isn't canonized, her family became an extraordinary family in the 19th century. Lots of priests and religious came out of her household. And that whole community in Dijon who knew Elizabeth, who knew about her writings, their great-grandchildren are in Dijon now, kind of the heirs of the spiritual message. The Church of San Michel, or St. Michael's, where Elizabeth grew up, it's an alive parish. Similarly, the convent, the Carmelite convent there in Dijon, they moved outside of Dijon for, I'm not sure for what reasons, but they were forced to move outside of Dijon in, I believe, the early 70s. And they relocated in the countryside, just outside the city. And that Carmel is flourishing. There's a lot of vocations there. And with all the secularism in France, you might ask why. Well, part of the reason is these living teachings of Elizabeth of the Trinity, they, they experienced the graces that Elizabeth wanted them to know, and it made all the difference in their lives, and that there's a, a wonderful community of faith there in Dijon. It is beautifully given to us in the second prayer, a reflection of a very simple, simple line from Scripture, remain in me. Yes. Beautiful. Um, the passage comes from John 15, verse 4. Remain in me. It is the word of God who gives this order, expresses this wish. Remain in me. Not for a few moments, a few hours, which must pass away, but remain permanently, habitually. Remain in me. Pray in me. Adore in me. Love in me. Suffer in me. Work and act in me. Remain in me so that you may be able to encounter anyone or anything. Penetrate further still into these depths. This is truly the solitude into which God wants to allure the soul that he may speak to it, as the prophet sang. In order to understand this very mysterious saying, we must not, so to speak, stop at the surface, but enter ever deeper into the divine being through recollection. I pursue my course, exclaimed St. Paul. So we must descend daily this pathway of the abyss, which is God. Let us slide down this slope in holy loving confidence. Abyss calls to abyss. It is there, in the very depths, that the divine impact takes place. Where the abyss of our nothingness encounters the abyss of mercy, the immensity of the all of God. There we find the strength to die to ourselves, and, losing all vestige of self, we will be changed into love. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. This passage, Remain in Me, this is Jesus' teaching to his disciples. Again, it's a, a teaching offered them the night before he dies. And he's encouraging them, knowing that his death is imminent. He's encouraging them to believe in him no matter what. And so, and how we have access to Jesus by faith. A lot of people believe that you can access God by mastering a technique or a method. And techniques and methods in prayer are very useful things. I'm, I'm, I'm not bashing that at all. 
but I am bashing the idea. I am attacking the idea. Elizabeth's reflection here in Jesus's own words cause us to reevaluate this idea that uh, meditation techniques and methods are sufficient for attaining God. Without faith, no method doesn't bring you into union with God. Without faith, techniques and methods are, are just systems for manipulation and God will not be manipulated. To remain in, in Jesus requires a humble heart that is open to his mercy. And so there's, there's two aspects here that I think are, are worthy of our reflection. First is, notice that she assumes that Jesus is present to, to her, her sister, that there's this kind of loving presence of the Lord just being offered to her right here and right now. Now, the reason that she believes this, she assumes this in the text, is because this, in fact, was her experience as a young person. She felt the presence of the Lord even in her first Holy Communion. It was so overwhelming. She mentioned to one of her friends, I am no longer hungry. Jesus has fed me. This was her first communion. She told her experience of feeling this presence of Jesus in her heart. She told it to Carmelite Prioress, whose monastery at that time was just in the neighborhood of Elizabeth's own house and the neighborhood of the parish where Elizabeth received her first communion. In fact, Elizabeth's house overlooked the courtyard of this monastery. So as a little girl, Elizabeth would look out of her window and see the Carmelite nuns down there. So after her first communion, she stops by the monastery and talks to the mother prioress and talks about, I received communion and I felt this presence of Jesus feeding me, satisfying me in my heart. And the mother prioress said to her, well, this is the meaning of your name, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, she said, means house of God. No, uh, Hebrew scholars will dispute that, but that was what was in the popular catechesis of the time. Being a dwelling place for God is uh, among Elizabeth's first memories of this presence she encountered in her Holy Communion. Her prayer after this first Holy Communion takes off and goes deeper and deeper and deeper. She'll eventually want to enter Carmel. And as part of that discernment, she talks to a, a spiritual director at Carmel. He, he happens to be a Dominican. His name is Père Valet or Father Valet. And he's a great preacher. And she says, you know, I hear some people talk about God as if he's angry and distant. I, however, have an experience of his loving closeness that it's a sweetness and it makes me want to pray more and more. In fact, she tells someone that she loves to spend hours searching her heart for the presence of Christ. And that there's just something that she just loved to do as a teenager. If she was a pianist, people would ask her, you know, how is it that you were able to play with such composure in front of so many crowds? And she was a great pianist, award-winning, but she said the secret to her composure was that when she would start to play, she'd turn her mind to God and she'd only be aware of him and she, the music would just flow out from her. And when, when she could no longer play, she would pray. When she could no longer pray, she'd play. Everything she did went with remaining with God. 
Remain in me. It is the word of God who gives this order, expresses this wish. Remain in me. Not for a few moments, a few hours which must pass away, but remain permanently, habitually. Remain in me. Pray in me. Adore in me. Love in me. Suffer in me. Work and act in me. These kinds of experiences to the spiritual director of Paravalet, and he thought it was very important for her to know the doctrine of St. Thomas about the indwelling of the Trinity, that by our life of faith, because of our baptism, the Father is constantly sending the Holy Spirit and the Son to us in new ways. And he said to her, don't you know that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit? And when she heard these words, she fell right into prayer. It, it validated this experience of the presence of Christ that she had been enjoying her whole life. That wasn't even a, a definitive moment in her life. That was just one more moment of prayer. Père Valet said, I was speaking to her. I went on to explain the theology behind all this. But she was so deep in prayer, I don't think she heard a word I said. Uh, it's the doctrine of prayer, the doctrines of our faith, our teachings are meant to lead us into a deep encounter with Christ, merely beginning to hear the teachings of that, hearing the words of the of the scriptures, know you not that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, the words from St. Paul. She hears these words, it leads her deeper into this presence of Christ, and she's able to remain with him in this and through it all. Well, she would go on, Anthony, in the reflection to say, uh, not just for minutes, not for a few hours, but permanently, habitually. And it, that is something that for many of us, as you've pointed out, that we think sometimes are, are prayer moments that we go over here and we pray. But we're called to have a life of ongoing prayer. I mean, that everything we do becomes prayer. And for a lot of us, the modern mindset thing, oh, I can't do that. You know, not when I have to watch TV or go to work or do something like that. It's a teaching of the sacred scriptures that we are to pray without ceasing, uh, that we're to give thanks in every circumstance. This teaching would not have been given to us if it wasn't possible to remain in Jesus, to be prayerfully aware of Jesus at all times. In our lives today, uh, in our busyness, we like to compartmentalize, you know, I'm doing my prayer here and then I get involved with this over there and, and we break that up. We don't allow ourselves to dwell in the presence of God. Elizabeth is saying, no, let that presence, let your awareness of his presence permeate everything you do, every relationship you enter into. Don't let anything that happens to you rob you of the joy that that presence is meant to afford you at this moment, at this time. In her first prayer, remember she said that Jesus wishes us to remain, to uh, be where he is, not simply in the future, but right now at this moment. And where is Jesus? Jesus is in the bosom of the Father. Jesus wants us to be with him in the bosom of the Father right now, not for a few minutes, but he wants us to remain with him uh, by an act of our will, by a simple choice to believe in his presence. He wants us to do that right here, right now, 
and to continue it throughout our daily lives, no matter what happens to us. And so she's teaching contemplative prayer, but she's also teaching unceasing prayer, a prayerful lifestyle, a whole prayerful approach to life so that everything we do is permeated uh, with God, leads to God and flows from God. And the curious thing, you know, she's telling her sister, a mother, that this kind of life is possible. What makes this life possible is the practice of what she calls recollection. Recollection is not merely a state of consciousness. A lot of people want it to be a state of consciousness, but it's a it's really a discipline of our hearts, a discipline of our minds. In this discipline, we make the decision to turn our hearts and minds back to God. That there were these little bands that people used to wear. What would Jesus do? It wasn't supposed to be kind of exterior moralism that those bands were meant to join us to. It was rather uh, an awareness that Jesus was with us right now and that in his presence with us, he opens up for us a whole way of life. Elizabeth focuses on this whole way of life by her explanation of recollection in terms of going down a slope. The slope that we go down is our misery. And as we go down the slope, she says, So we must descend daily this pathway of the abyss, which is God. Let us slide down this slope in holy loving confidence. Abyss calls to abyss. It is there, in the very depths, that the divine impact takes place. Where the abyss of our nothingness encounters the abyss of mercy, the immensity of the all of God. When we choose to live prayerfully, when we choose to make Jesus the center of our life at every moment, when we live our life asking the question at every moment, what would Jesus do? Uh, when we remain with him, one of the things that you, you begin to realize is there's a lot of stuff in your life that you do that is not what Jesus would do at all. There's a lot of stuff in your life that you do that has no love in it. And some of those things you can control. Sometimes there's, there's sharp words and angry looks that you can avoid making, you know, not only in the grocery store and on the freeways, but, but also uh, in our households around the dinner table. There's, uh, you know, there's some things that are in our control that we wrestle to do. This is part of being recollected is to make the effort to do that. But there are other things that you just do. They're involuntary and they're stupid and you're ashamed of yourself after you do them when you recognize that you do them. And many more things that we do that we don't even recognize we do that are, are just not loving. They're an absence of love in our life. The absence of God's love in our life, this is our misery. And Jesus came to die for us so that in our misery, we can find him. And this is what is standing behind Elizabeth's words about this double abyss. As we go down the abyss of our misery, if when we choose to live in the presence of God, when we choose to remain with Christ, when we live our life mindful of him, what's going to happen is that we're going to see there's a number 
of ways in which God's love is absent in our lives. Living with, in, with God in our hearts, allowing our, our thoughts to be drenched by him, one of the things you begin to see is how much of our lives we have not allowed God to be present. That's a very painful realization. Elizabeth is calling her sister to, she's saying, the pathway to happiness, the pathway to the Father's heart is a kind of recollection where you face the pain of your misery. You see it for what it is and you allow yourself to be humbled by it. You allow yourself to be moved by contrition. You allow yourself to be pierced to the heart by the fact that we do not love the way we ought to love. And when we do this, when we allow ourselves to see our poverty and to offer this to God, to offer this to this presence that we're remaining in, to offer this to Jesus, who yearns for communion with us, she says that we discover in the abyss of this misery the deeper abyss of God's mercy. The word mercy comes from misericordia. It's a sharing in the heart the misery of another. And God shares in our misery with us. He suffers us, suffers it with us so that in the midst of it, in the midst of our failures, he is right there. We can find him there. And he's waiting for us. He's yearning for us to find him. When I said earlier, Elizabeth used to like to spend hours in prayer just searching for God. One of the places she found him, and one of the reasons she's writing this to her sister, she found Jesus in her misery. She was, especially as a young girl, she had a very angry temper, and she had a hard time wrestling with self-control. She eventually found the resources she needed, the interior resources she needed for self-control, as she looked for Jesus in the midst of, of her impatience and her lack of gentleness with others. When she sought Jesus there, Jesus would give to her the riches of his grace. And it's only by the riches of the grace that we can overcome the misery that is in our hearts, the absence of love that's in our hearts. So isn't this a beautiful thing? Where the abyss of our nothingness encounters the abyss of mercy the immensity of the all of God. There we find the strength to die to ourselves, and losing all vestige of self, we will be changed into love. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. By dying on the cross, Jesus has found a way to enter into our misery, so that in the midst of of that difficulty in the midst of that suffering, if we turn to him, he can offer us right there in our weakness, the riches of his grace and out of the riches of his grace in the midst of all our failures, we find his mercy. Mercy is manifested in our lives by conversion. And so what Elizabeth is talking about by this recollected life, this peaceful life, this life that's lived, lived slipping down the slope, being aware of Jesus in the midst of our failure, seeking him in the midst of it. When we do that, we will encounter his mercy. Our lives will be converted. We will 
turn from sinfulness, from the absence of love that's in our life, and turn to the source of love, which is Jesus himself, who's waiting to be found in our brokenness. And finding him there, this is the way we remain with him. Mm. Yeah, it's such a tremendous thought, one that we should ponder, abyss meets abyss. And and that great image of mercy that you just presented before us, Anthony, to recall that this was written by a 26-year-old girl in 1906. Would it be 20 years before St. Faustina and the, the movement of the Spirit in her life that helped in that great revelation of the divine mercy? Well, interestingly enough, Sister Faustina would, would have been formed by the Carmelite mystics of the 19th century, including Elizabeth of the Trinity and Therese of Lisieux, both of whom had a deep devotion to divine mercy. And so in a way, those saints helped prepare Sister Faustina for the message of mercy that Jesus entrusted to her. And, and so we, we know that Sister Faustina was entrusted with this beautiful message of mercy. She was told that those who would turn to the mercy of Christ, who would trust in the mercy of Jesus, they would be sustained in difficult times and God would be glorified through them. You know, and she died in 1938, months before the, the Nazis invaded Poland. She died uh, in Krakow. The Nazis invade Poland, but because she was faithful to the message of mercy, a message she was formed in by Jesus himself, but also by the Carmelite mystics whom she read who were part of her formation as a religious in, uh, in the community that she was in. She died. She was buried. And it's an interesting place where she was buried. Waganiki is right next to the work camps where John Paul II studied for the priesthood right under the noses of the Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he, it's just a hell. It's on the other side of the hell uh, from the convent where uh, Sister Faustina was buried, and those two would become the great apostles of mercy for the 20th century. John Paul II would beatify and canonize her, implement the Feast of Mercy the first Sunday after Easter, and devotion to divine mercy has become a major part of our lives. To, to understand that message, though, to understand what Jesus is revealing to Sister Faustina, I think if we, if we study the writings of Therese of Lisieux, but also Elizabeth of the Trinity, we see new dimensions of that, and this passage speaks to that. Mm, wonderful. Anthony, thank you so much. I can't wait to reflect on the second day of Heaven and Faith in our next episode. I'm looking forward to our discussion and to our time of prayer together. God bless you. You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis.